Hey team, and welcome to Lead Them to Life. If this is your first episode, welcome. If you've been along with me for the journey, thank you so much for listening and for sharing episodes with your friends. You're about to listen to one of perhaps my favorite episodes that I have ever recorded for Lead Them to Life. And I maybe have said that before, but I think that this conversation is such a worthy one. So before I get into that, I want to give a little brief life update and then a disclaimer about this episode. So first of all, I wanted to share with you that I have recently switched jobs. Uh, I am now the new executive director of Catholic Family Services. So basically, I oversee some of our counseling offerings, our outreach, especially to those that are hurting, grieving, uh, maybe going through uh, separation or divorce, etc., Uh, I am so excited to be on this new endeavor. I'm learning a ton in my first few weeks and I would just appreciate your prayers amidst the transition. I get asked a lot, so what does this mean for the podcast? And my honest answer is, I don't really know. Right now, I continue to feel called to do it and hopefully this will actually create an opportunity for more honest conversations about healing, uh, about what it means to be human, especially through uh, the lens of the lens of the psychological sciences. So for now, we continue on, and I so appreciate your support and encouragement in that process. Now, secondly, for the disclaimer. As I said, this might be one of my favorite episodes ever recorded for Lead Him to Life because I think it's an extraordinarily honest conversation and one that's so desperately needed uh, in today's current climate. It's really a deep dive into the reality of sexual brokenness and where it comes from in various individuals. So if you have little ears in the car, you might want to pause and come back to this one at a later time. But I hope that you do share it with a friend and I hope that it blesses you immensely. So with that, here's my conversation with Jay Stringer. You're listening to Lead Him to Life, where it's our prerogative to explore what it means to be authentically human and fully alive. We have far more questions than answers, but believe that extraordinary answers can be found in the ordinariness of a journey. I'm your host, Emily Leadham. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of Leadham to Life. I get excited about all of the episodes I record, but Jay, this might be the one that tops the cake in terms of my enthusiasm and and excitement. Um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, and then I want to share a little bit with the audience of kind of how I first encountered you, but welcome to the podcast, Jay. How are you? Who are you? Emily, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Jay Stringer, and I am a licensed mental health counselor, an ordained minister, and an author of a book uh, titled Unwanted. And uh, just recently moved with my family from Seattle, Washington to New York City. So we are very, very gradually getting settled <laughs> in a very large city. So slowly that's, that's but surely. Brief intro. Yes. And you yeah. moved to New York City during a global pandemic. How has that affected it at all? How's it been going? Yes. I mean, your listeners might want to question almost anything I say from this point on. What are we Questioning your sanity. (laughs) Yes. So we made the decision to move uh, pre-COVID-19. Okay. uh, And then when we were trying to figure out where to go next, there was just no really good option. And Mm. the positivity rates in New York at the time were about less than 1%. So they you know, they had, they were the epicenter and now they're uh, doing extremely well. 
And so it's been such a beautiful, wild transition here, but has also been a little bit like dating where, you know, you, you, you get into this new relationship with the city and yeah. it's beautiful and there's music playing and there's amazing restaurants. And it's just like, I can't believe I found this city. And then we're about six weeks in now and you, you just start noticing there, there is dog poop on every sidewalk. Oh, no. There is pee. I, I, I cannot step on concrete without not stepping on a pee stain. Uh, oh so we, we have kind of just been the whole gamut of our introduction to New York where we've loved it and then just seen this is a massive city. So. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you compare it to dating, the the initial romance, and now you're starting to see the quirks, you know, come yes. out. Yeah. But hopefully and, and you I, find the pea stains endearing and <laughs> <laughs> they continue yes. to make you feel more at home. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, Jay, I first encountered you. Uh, you were on a podcast called The Place We Find Ourselves with Adam Young. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I also... Uh, heard you on consider before consuming, uh, which is a, a podcast put out by fight the new drug, which is kind of a pornography awareness, uh, and, um, education resource, if you will. And I just fell in love with your heart and the way that you were approaching uh, the conversation specifically around people dealing with unwanted uh, sexual behaviors or unwanted uh, kind of neurotic behaviors, if you will. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I was so moved and I thought, okay, this is a voice that needs to be amplified uh, in the world because you just approached it with such compassion and honesty uh, and, and a lot of newness, which we'll get into. So the, the first thing that I want to know um, is what drew you to desiring to help people, uh, specifically working through some of these various realities that they might have been struggling with? Because that's a kind of, that's, I mean, you're going into- It's a the, narrow niche to have. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And, and quite frankly, you know, like, uh, you're, you're going out into the streets, if you will, of some heavy stuff sometimes. Um, so there must've been like a call for you, but, but what drew you to that? Yeah, I'll say two things, one personal and one professional. So the, the personal side of it was, you know, I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad was a Protestant minister. And so, uh, growing up, uh, whenever there was a crisis in our church, people would try to reach my dad at the church office. And then when they couldn't reach him, they would call our home answering machine. And so uh, when I would kind of just be at home, you would start hearing these answering machine messages from people in crisis. So that could have been like a suicidality, mental health breakdown. Uh, And one that I really remember was when an elder in my dad's church had just been caught in an affair by his wife and his wife called And I could just kind of see my parents go into crisis mode, that this was going to like change the the nature of our church from that day forward. And I remember being a young boy and just being like, you know, I would have never known that people struggled with suicidality, struggled with uh, affairs, pornography. Uh, And why is it that it's only in secret and only in crisis that some of the most difficult matters of our life are ever spoken. Mm-hmm. And so that was always kind of in the back of my mind growing up is, you know, why does there have to be just unbelievable heartache? 
to get the church to be honest, because we never talk about these things on Sunday. We never talk about these things in various small groups. And so that, that has always stuck with me is I want to be part of creating a culture, a church culture, a world where you don't have to blow up your life uh, in order to actually attend to some of the difficult matters that we find ourselves in. So that was kind of the personal kind of childhood story. Uh, And there's a lot that happened to my life personally, my own failures, pornography history, all of that. But um, after I graduated from grad school, uh, the mayor of Seattle at the time had started what was called the John School. And this was a program designed for men who had been arrested for soliciting women in prostitution. And so uh, I was eventually asked to be the sex addiction therapist for the city of Seattle. And so I started working with a lot of this population of men who, uh, you know, society in many ways, rightly so, uh, has a lot of critique for these men. This is absolutely a form of male violence against women. Uh, But there was often this kind of sense that these men just had kind of an antisocial behavior perspective and they were kind of, you know, they couldn't really be changed. They were just far too entitled. There was something really wrong with them. And then I just started actually listening to a lot of these men's stories. And as I started working with some of them clinically, uh, they all started telling me very, very similar stories with regard to their childhoods and then what would get reenacted as adults. And so one particular story, and again, changing some of the details, but uh, what he told me was, he said, Jay, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I definitely pursue buying sex for the orgasm. Uh, But far more, what I'm seeking after is trying to lock eyes with a woman on the streets. And no, and he just said, uh, I would cruise around the streets of Seattle for hours, really just trying to lock eyes with women on the street. It could be women in prostitution. It could just be someone at at a stop sign. It could be someone at a crosswalk. And he said that that sense of being able to lock eyes with someone was my ritual. That was the thing that would get me out of bed. That's the thing that would kind of drive me to this behavior to begin with. Um, And so we started kind of unpacking some of that story of just kind of saying, you know, why Friday afternoons do you cruise around the neighborhood? And we started getting into some of his childhood story over the next two sessions. And one of the stories that he told me was that his parents uh, had gotten him a Schwinn bicycle when he was a boy. And he said, Jay, I love that bike. And I said, tell me what you loved about it. And he said, I used to cruise around my neighborhoods just trying to lock eyes with girls in my class, their friends' moms. And one of the my most favorite times to kind of take my bike out was kind of late spring, early summer. And I said, why was that? And he said, that's because that's when a lot of the families were having barbecues and he would get invited over uh, for a meal. And so that was in many ways, part of the hinge of his healing was to get a sense of, you know, this pattern uh, in childhood that was actually really innocent, really seeking after connection with a Schwinn bicycle eventually grew into a, a very entitled man who was driving around an SUV hoping to buy sex, but there was still something of his innocence that was preserved in that search. 
And so that was really like the, the place of really profound tears and healing for him was to really have to grapple with what am I searching for? Um, and how do I attend to some of the wounds of my childhood that, you know, I didn't have people to see me. I had to get on a bike and leave my family in order to be seen and cared for. And that was just a really profound moment for me of, of recognizing that the stories that people are living out of in their present entitled broken sexuality actually is a clarion call for them to attend to some of the wounds, some of the heartache and some of the unresolved stories of their life. And so, you know, from just kind of seeing there, there's so much, people are so much more complex uh, and, yeah. and beautiful uh, yeah. than I would have ever conceived of when I first started doing this work. So yeah. both, you know, seeing the underbelly of the church, but yeah. then also kind of clinical work with men and women, just really recognizing these problems that we face are not random at all. That's that's exactly what struck me as you were sharing that story is there was an underlying thing and you just saying this was an aha moment for me as a clinician, recognizing this stuff is coming from somewhere. Um, as you were as you were telling that story, you used the word um, that was his ritual, you used the word ritual. Um, can you what what is that? What is that? What do you mean when you're talking when you say that that's somebody's ritual? I think for for us as listeners, it'd be helpful maybe as we're examining some of our own <laughs> sure. stories. What's a ritual? Okay, sure. So, you know, what I'm thinking about is this is, uh, you know, Patrick Carnes kind of talked about the sex addiction cycle. And um, I like to think of it a little bit more like a clock. And so if you were to imagine 12 o'clock is kind of a place of preoccupation where you're not really thinking about buying sex, you're not thinking about having an affair, you're not thinking about a hookup. Uh, and then six o'clock would be in some ways the acting out moment. So you, you choose to hook up with someone, uh, you choose to have an affair, you look at porn. Uh, well, between 12 and six o'clock, there is a ritual that every man or woman actually enters into in order to get to that place. And so for some of us, that might be, you know, I stay up way too late to be able to kind of work on my email and watch a show. And I know that my spouse is going to go to bed at that juncture, which means that I'm going to actually have an hour to myself to watch porn. Well, that's part of that person's ritual to get them into that behavior. For some people, that could be alcohol, where they know that, you know, after two, three drinks, their inhibitions are lower, and then therefore they're much more likely to act out sexually. They couldn't just get there without the presence of alcohol. So just that sense of uh, a lot of people try to change their behavior at six o'clock without really understanding, well, what's the whole ritual in place to get us there? And a lot of times, you know, when we, we might feel ashamed about who we are, we might kind of look at our bodies and just be like, you are so pathetic. You've gained X amount of pounds this year. You're a piece of crap. And so what ends up happening is then you enter into a ritual where you actually find evidence to confirm that you really are a piece of crap. Um, and so just that sense of that, that's where people have to change is you have to get a sense of what's the ritual that brings you into your unwanted behavior of any kind. And most people try and just stop what they do at 559 without really getting a without sense of how to... Exactly. So, you know, you have to have an eye for what your ritual is if there's going to be change. Wow. I've never, Jay, I've never heard that. I'm learning so much from you already. So then the goal would be to interrupt the ritual? 
basically, uh, or, to, potentially. or to change yeah. the ritual? What's the yeah. what's the end goal? Yeah. So let's say that there there's something about me that feels uh, unwanted, uh, that I don't really feel like I have what it takes to measure up. Well, I have to actually understand where is that story coming from? Uh, where have been the stories in my mm-hmm. life that have formed that core belief about myself that I'm unwanted or unlovely? Um, and so I have to be able to kind of look thematically that, yes, I need good rituals of self-care. I need to be able to kind of go for a run. I need to be able to care for my body. I need to be able to be in relationship with other people. But until you actually step into what are the core wars? What are the core accusations that you hold against yourself? There's really not going to be profound shifts because, you know, one of the the key premises of my kind of, if you can call it a theory, would just be that we don't pursue unwanted sexual behaviors because we are self-medicating or we're bored. I would say that far more, we're actually pursuing a behavior that confirms our core belief against ourselves. So in many ways, we pursue behaviors not to self-medicate and to escape, but far more for the purpose of judgment. And so everybody you know, has to get a sense of what, what's the judgment embedded within my story that I'm actually providing evidence for in the court of law against myself. Wow. As you're working with people, can people always uh, go back and pinpoint a story, a moment, a conversation, a memory? Um, I mean, is it, is it always attached to a memory? Uh, almost always. Yes. Mm. I, I think you can. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> there's an art form of how do you actually go about doing that? So let's, let's say an example of, you know, someone who believes that their arousal is just problematic, right? So they have a high level of, uh, distrust in their, um, in their sexual arousal. So they look at all the debris of their affairs, their porn history. But I have to go back to be able to say, when did you begin to distrust your arousal? And so for a lot of people, that might bring us back into a place of sexual abuse where, you know, they actually felt a level of arousal with their abuser, which is just one of those statements that I would have to unpack in another hour podcast. Yeah. Okay, Um, deal. You're coming back on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But for, for a lot of people, that initial sense of if I felt arousal associated with porn or with my abuser, well, what ends up happening later is that then you, you judge it and you say, you know, how stupid, how broken am I, how, how sick am I that I would actually feel arousal with porn or with my abuser. And so that's where the judgment gets uh, made. And then much later in life, you're actually pursuing behaviors that reinforce that core judgment that there's something about your sexuality, there's something about who you are, that's just broken and flawed. And so that's, that's really the, I would say the work of the church, the work of counseling is to really help people identify uh, what's the story that they're living out of, what's the story that they're telling themselves, uh, that's actually full of lies and accusations. And I think that's, you know, John 1010 10 speaks to that. What, what does the evil one do? It, it comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. And so I think, in a way, there's evil that's out to to ruin sexuality. But 
if evil doesn't need to do anything but can get us to sully our own sexuality in the process, it succeeds. So I think just that sense of being able to invite people into, you know, what are the judgments? What are the accusations and the condemnation that you have made against your sexuality? And where, what are the origin stories of where all that came to be? Wow. Jay, I've heard you talk about uh, kind of two sides of a spectrum um, in people when it comes to examining their views on on sexuality. One is kind of this um, real, uh, which often you see in kind of conservative people, uh, I think is how you worded it, where uh, conservative people can maybe tend to associate sexuality as bad or um, have a lot of shame surrounding uh, maybe sexual struggles that they've had. And then on the other end of the spectrum, kind of this sex positive, everything is, is good. Uh, all, everything is on the table. Uh, and yet there's still some shame. And I want to focus on the, on the left end of the spectrum, uh, in terms of maybe some people that are in those conservative circles. What you've used the words lust management and, Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear from you. What's what do you mean? The difference between kind of lust management and and what I would hope for for people as real true true freedom from maybe their unwanted um, sexual behaviors or outbursts or or whatever. Sure. Yeah. So you know, lust management. I would just say is it's what the church. Uh, <laughs> usually prescribes Unfortunately, for men yeah. and women struggling yeah. with unwanted sexual behavior. So, yeah. you know, it, this is uh, bounce your eyes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're having a thought, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be a battle that you need to fight for the rest of your life. Um, so a lot of battle conquering type of language. Uh, there is, you know, if you huh, that's so true. To, yeah. Yeah. If you continue to struggle, you need to get some form of internet monitoring on your computer. And then for those who are really struggling, you need an accountability group. And so, uh, you know, one of my friends said to me when I was writing my book, he said, Jay, when I've been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years, something isn't working. Uh, And so just lust management is primarily trying to like manage this thing called lust, which you know, I, I certainly believe lust exists and it's a it's a huge driver of unwanted sexual behavior, but it's not the only driver. And so on the other side, the more I would say liberal progressive side is just, you know, shame and stigma are the primary issues. And if we can just remove shame and stigma, then people are actually going to become healthy. And, you know, I have no argument against removing shame and stigma, but what I often find is that there's not a lot of invitation for people to actually find meaning within their sexual behaviors and fantasies. They just kind of give it, you know, they, they try and say, yeah, it, as long as there's consent and it's not hurting anyone, uh, then you're actually free to actually do what you want to do. Um, and so my approach within Unwanted was, what if we could actually develop a third way? One that wasn't trying to get people to suppress their sexuality, but also wasn't one that just kind of gave carte blanche to be able to go wherever you wanted to go. And so to do that, I I did some research on uh, just under 4,000 men and women to get a sense of, you know, what were their family of origin stories? What was their relationship like with their moms and their dads? What were formative uh, adverse childhood experiences like trauma? 
uh, abuse. And then some of the major porn sites out there actually keep track of all their data, like the, the top 20 search for terms on the internet. And so my research actually looked at not just past stories, but actually what was your arousal template? And an arousal template, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's basically a constellation of images, thoughts, sensations, times of day, relational archetypes that you all find arousing. And so that could be a particular porn search that you put in, that could be a fantasy going through your mind when you're having sex. Um, and so I wanted to get a sense of what, what could all those things actually teach us if we were willing to actually be curious about uh, the, the sexual mind of a, of a man and a woman. And part of what we learned in the research was that um, your porn search, the fantasies that go through your mind are actually not random at all. They are a direct huh. reflection of the parts of your story. And so we could actually uh, predict uh, sexual arousal preferences based on people's life story, which was just wild. Okay. Can you got to uh, give me an example? Uh, yeah, I'll give you two examples. Uh, the first was that, let's say you were a man uh, who was wanting to find a woman who maybe had a smaller body type, a blonde, maybe a race that suggested to you some level of subservience. Mm -hmm. uh, what predicted that arousal in that fantasy search in porn was uh, that man had a strict father growing up. Uh, he had a high levels of a lack of purpose in his life and his career. And then the third was that he had really high levels of shame. And so, again, just to be able to grapple with, if you went through a childhood and you were overpowered by your dad, you're feeling really stuck and powerless in your job, in your world today, and you're feeling a lot of shame, well, what does porn use actually offer you? It, it gives you a place to reestablish dominance and control and get exactly what you want. And so again, a lot of us try to stop our unwanted sexual behaviors without really thinking about what is it about this fantasy that might be appealing to me in the first place. So that's one example. Another example would be, uh, I'll give one for women as well. Um, you know, if, if you were a woman who was having fantasies or actually pursuing extramarital affairs, depending on the type of affair that you were pursuing, uh, you were somewhere, I don't have the stats right in front of me, but somewhere between two and a half percent and 4.7 times more likely to pursue an affair if you did not feel like your needs were being met in your relationship. And so part of what I would say in that is that that's not you know, that's not an excuse to kind of say uh, that means that your husband or your spouse needs to attend to your needs. But if you're familiar with the Enneagram, right, this is an Enneagram two more than likely, like they are the helpers. Uh, women are often socialized to not actually bring their needs and their desires forward. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that you begin to suppress your real desires. You, you try and avoid conflict rather than actually saying, I want more in my marriage. And my husband is far too checked out. He cares far too much about the NFL, far too much about something else to actually see me attend to me. And so what ends up happening is that then you develop a fantasy life around maybe your high school boyfriend or someone in college or maybe a colleague who actually engages your heart, engages something of where you find life. And so, again, just that sense of 
our sexual fantasies are not something to suppress. They're not something to just pursue. We need to actually study them, interrogate them to get a sense of what they're symbolizing, because most of us try and, you know, only pursue it in fantasy rather than actually saying, what does this mean for me in reality that I need to engage? And so I think we found something of a third way in the research of let's be really curious about our sexual life and allow it to teach us things that we need to learn about past pain and current roadblocks that we don't know how to navigate. Wow. And it's, it strikes me that as in both of those examples for men and women, it's also revealing this deeper need of the human heart to be fathered, uh, to be seen, to be known for, to, for our hearts to be engaged, you know, in, in the various ways for, the respect uh, that men, I think, really have a need for in particular, and then women, this need for to be loved, um, which is just so striking to me. You've, you've used this analogy before about meeting our sexual desires at the front door. Can you share a little bit about that and, uh, and unpack it a sure. little bit? Yeah. So this is, I have a, an online course that is used for parishes, churches, small groups, accountability partners. So instead of just deconstructing uh, most less management in, in the church, I wanted to kind of create a, a new thing. So that this uh, example is from the online course, but it, essentially it's to think about your sexual life uh, as a house. And so just to kind of put yourself in that position, like it's late in the evening, and you hear that familiar knock of lust on your door and just that question of what are you going to do? Well, in the past, you may have tried to, you know, call a friend for backup. Uh, maybe you had that Internet monitoring that you hoped would have been a force field over your house. Uh, maybe you just let the trespasser come in and ransack various rooms of your life. And, you know, if you're married in your marriage. Uh, so what I hope you kind of see in that is most approaches, again, either try to kind of quarantine and suppress and keep out desire, or they just let it in. And so meeting it out on the front porch is about going out to the front porch and, and asking your fantasies and your sexual brokenness questions like, you know, why is it that this particular porn search has been appealing to me since I was 15? Uh, why is it that every single time I leave uh, spending time with my parents, I feel like acting out? Uh, why is it that this particular type of person is someone that I both despise, but then also in my sexual fantasy, I have them overpower me? What's going on there? And so just to be able to invite people into really interrogating, studying, and listening to uh, their sexual fantasies is, is I think, a much better approach. And I think this is what we see in scripture, right? Where, you know, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but actually be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what I would say is you can't actually transform your sexual mind if you don't have any language or curiosity about what's inside. And so I think this is the invitation is, 
you know, God knows our hearts, God knows our intentions, knows uh, our desires before we even ask them. And so if we're really taking the gospel seriously, it means that God knows our hearts and does not, he's not surprised, he's not ashamed of what's within us, uh, but he moves towards us with radical curiosity to invite us to consider how is it that we got into this brokenness, this heartache to begin with? And I think that's really where we begin to change is we get a sense that, uh, you know, God is curious, God is kind. And again, don't want to overquote scripture, but just that sense of that's Romans 2.4. Do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads to change? Mm. The problem for the church is that we try to change principally out of self-contempt and judgment. And that doesn't work. It just means that I'm going to try and annihilate my sexuality to change. And all I can say is, how has that worked for you over the last 10 years, 30 years, 40 years? <laughs> yeah. um, why don't you try kindness? Yeah. The question that's coming up for me as you're describing this, because in, in working with a lot of different people and even looking at my own story at different times, I think there's a bit of a fear that can come up in us um, about meeting whatever whatever it is, whether it's sexual or um, emotional or uh, addiction behavior regarding food, alcohol, whatever. There can be some fear about meeting it on the front porch uh, because what if? And uh, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And I think sometimes it's a little bit scary to just look at our own story. Um, mm -hmm. what would you, what would you say to somebody that's maybe listening to this saying, Oh, Jay, that terrifies mm -hmm. the crap out of me. You know, yes. I, I don't, I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> yes. Yep. And I would say, I mean, you're absolutely right, Emily. Like there, this is, this is one of those areas where, uh, there is so much shame. Uh, and so, you know, the reality of women struggling with porn, what we know is that 30% of porn users are now women, but mm -hmm. we almost never talk about that. Still in the church, after all the research has come out, we still talk about this as a man's issue. And so uh, all of that is true. All of your shame, all of the past stories are actually going to rise when you begin to lean into these matters. And I think that's always the nature of freedom is a two-choice dilemma. So on one hand, I really want to be free. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't want to face pain. Well, <laughs> you, you, you in, in many ways can't have both. And it's in that wrestling where, you know, I really want to be free, but I don't want to face pain that we have to say, okay, well, I actually do have a lot of pain back there that I need to heal. Mm. And it's in the turning and facing our pain, facing our heartache, uh, where we actually develop compassion, where we develop a sense of curiosity about how these things have happened. So um, I, I think the fear is so real, um, but also just that invitation of how miserable does it need to be? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and if you're not choosing to lean in and uh, be curious and be kind to what's there, well, you're, you're choosing something else, perhaps passively, but you're choosing to live in uh, a reenactment, you're choosing to kind of not want to see. And I think that actually has uh, much more damage in mm. the long run. So mm. yes, the, the pain is real, but yeah. uh, 
freedom, longing, living with wholeness uh, it is so, so beautiful. It's so much better. There's a woman that I really admire. Her name is Sister Miriam James Hydland. She's done a lot of work in um, just healing of the whole person, working with Dr. Bob Schutz and some of these people maybe you're familiar mm. with your work. But um, she often says, I want to be well. And I just love that phrase, like, I just want to be well. And sometimes I've had friends that have, you know, commented to me, like, how are you so willing to deep dive into vulnerable places and whatever? And then I just have this real ache to, I want to be yeah. well, you yes. know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Love it. And one of my professors always used to talk about, like, you know, the, the reality of if you have cancer, uh, you know, what are the three forms of treatment that we sanction in the United States? It's radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to burn you, I'm going to poison you, or I'm going <laughs> to cut you. Uh, and that's, oh, you know, that's, that's yeah. called treatment. And so yeah. there is going to be pain and misery, but this is to save a life. It's to be able to invite you to actually feel a sense of freedom, wholeness, delight in your sexuality. Because for so many of us that struggle with sexual brokenness, uh, we don't see our sexuality as beautiful. We don't see our sexuality actually has so much to teach us about right. the heart of God who wants us to give and to receive pleasure right. uh, for his glory. Right. I So I was on a retreat yesterday, and one of the questions um, that we were asked was to consider where are the places where you are not experiencing interior freedom. And so I you know, took this to prayer, and we had some time. And one of the things that came up for me was um, just this awareness uh, as, as a few things came up of the places where I wasn't free – kind of this sense of like, I don't know if I should go in there alone. Um, mm. If that makes sense there, it just, it was interesting. There was just kind of this thought thought in the back of my mind where, um, because I could have, I, I could have uh, started to dissect it and try and figure out, well, why am I not free there? And where does that come from? And let's psychoanalyze myself. And I just kind of got this, like, don't, don't enter this space alone. And I, I'm curious from your perspective, do you, and is it safe? <laughs> it's never safe. Even going with someone else, it's not safe, is it? But it's good. Um, yes. And so do you encourage people um, if they're if they're looking at maybe their stories or if they're looking at, yeah, what are those rituals that maybe lead up to some unwanted behaviors, whether that's pornography, uh, binge eating, uh, you know, my mind being somewhere else when I'm with my spouse, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. um, as people are wanting to pursue healing, can they, can they do it by themselves or, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. It's, I'm so glad you're bringing it up uh, because that just that sense of, you know, what we were talking about earlier is if I'm already prejudged against myself, well, almost any data, any stories that I see, I'm going to, I'm going to see through the filter of my own judgment. And oh, interesting. And so, it, you know, what you're saying is spot on that I, I actually need another observer. I need someone else to help me understand and to see what I can. So sure. outside of a selfie uh, or <laughs> a mirror, I, I can't actually see my face. And so I need my spouse. I need my kids. I need good friends to reflect back to me um, my face. I mean, it, and so I think that's true of not just our face, but also of our stories of 
you know, when you engage uh, a story of your father's violence in childhood, uh, or when you engage a story of your own heartache, uh, many people judge themselves of just kind of saying, you know, I just wanted too much, or I was just such an annoying kid. And then when you actually dive into that story with community, you hear that, I mean, th this kid was a pebble in people's shoe, but he was, you know, essentially saying the emperor has no clothes in the family and uh, he was hated for it. And so, you know, for a lot of people, they begin to say, you know, I, I just shouldn't have said that thing, or I was just too sensitive. And in community, we learn actually that version of the story that you've been telling yourself is not actually it's, true. It's, not true. it's because of how beautiful you were that you were actually envied. And so when you think about a story like Joseph, I mean, he had his, his father's affection. He had the coat of many colors. Yeah. And that's precisely why he was hated in his family. And so most of us don't see our story through that lens of, you know, I actually had really beautiful, remarkable gifts as a child. And I was actually despised by my mom for them because I had a closer relationship with my dad because I could talk, I could joke, I could do it. And so we end up condemning ourselves rather than facing, I think, the more uncomfortable truth of our beauty. And so that's why we need other people is, you know, we, we usually just kind of sully ourselves in... I'm a piece of crap. I want too much. Look at my sexuality. I'm so broken. I've slept with this many people. How could I ever be fixed? And uh, I really think that we are far more undone by our beauty than we are of our brokenness. Oh, Jay, preach. The, the more difficult truth to look at of our beauty. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. yes. Oh, Jay, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, okay, I have I have one more question for you, and then I want to talk a little bit about where people can kind of find you and okay, continue great. to follow along with you. So I ask every guest that comes on, lead them to life, uh, if there's a question that you have been pondering. And this really comes from, you're a therapist, so so you do this better than anybody, right? So how do you feel about that? Or whatever questions you're, I don't, do, do therapists actually say that? Or is that just like a joke that we all have? Say it again. I said, do, do, do say, therapists actually say, how do you feel about that? We do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Or, yeah. <laughs> I just started working in our, in our Catholic family services. So overseeing our counseling agency. And the other day I said to someone, so how do you, how do you feel about that? And they were like, oh my gosh, you're, you're totally, you know, yeah. in, in the well, counseling well, world now. Yeah. And one of the reasons that we do it isn't just because we're like, I mean, I think we are genuinely curious, but some people will talk about like, you know, I had a, you know, I had a great Thanksgiving with my family and yet their face is like not telling that story. Yeah. And so it's like, how are you? Was it actually right great? Now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I just have to break the news to them that the holidays actually keep me in business because of <laughs> All the, the family trauma. dynamics. Yes. <laughs> so. Oh, I love it. So, so yeah. So I ask every guest that comes on uh, if there's a question that you have been pondering. And this really just comes from my uh, heart's desire to ask questions of myself and the world around me to better understand mm -hmm. who I am and uh, sometimes who God is, who my community is. So yeah. I want to know if there is a question that you have been pondering and the only rule is that you can't answer your own question. We have to leave yes. your question unanswered. Yes. I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> 
questions about where the name Leedham comes from? Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's like a Scottish, maybe. I'm going to have to okay. ask my husband. <laughs> okay, yeah. It, it but isn't that kind of cute? Our, our, uh, yeah. our wedding hashtag was Leedham to the altar. So yes. as I was trying to come up with a name for this podcast, I, yeah, God asked me to do it like two and a half years ago and, uh, yeah. I put it off and put it off and put it off. And I told him, well, I don't know a name for it. And then, uh, lead them to life kind of came forward. So yeah, I would be very <laughs> curious where lead them comes from and what the leads or the lead ums were doing. My father-in-law's um, totally going to text me and tell me what it, what it means when he listens Great. to this episode. I'll, I'll let you know. Great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the question that I was pondering this morning, uh, so, you know, went for a run, I listened to uh, audiobooks, and I'm probably two thirds of the way through a book called The Coddling of the American Mind uh, by Jonathan Haidt. And um, it, basically where he starts with this, where he starts in his introduction is he talks about, you know, peanut allergies. Uh, and how there is a resurgence, just a huge spike happening right now with uh, peanut allergies. And so the, you know, the old wisdom was, you know, peanuts can cause a lot of harm to children that are more disposed to that type of allergy. And so the, a lot of allergists just began to say, we should not introduce children to peanuts because, uh, you know, the rates of harm that this could do. And essentially what the research has found is that, I'm going to misquote him, but let's, let's just say for this example, only 2% actually had a peanut allergy that was dangerous. Well, part of what's emerging right now is like that has spiked up to like 25 or 30% of people now have peanut allergies. And so his argument is that in our attempts to actually... Uh, bring safety to people's lives. Uh, we've actually created people uh, to be far more vulnerable than they naturally are. And so, you know, as a mental health clinician who, you know, specializes in trauma and addiction, uh, he, I mean, he does a great job over the, you know, the, all the chapters to be able to really unpack how we have, uh, kind of tried to overproof people. Um, and, but just, I, I think I'm really wrestling with that, where how do we build a model that's trauma informed, invite the church to really think about the impact of our words and sexuality, um, but also not create kind of a, an extremely fragile space. And I don't know where that distinction is, but I, I think you know, we don't want to go back to the days where we just kind of say sticks and stones, break my yeah. bones, words will never hurt. But then we also have created a culture where, where we're not inviting people in college and childhood to actually uh, have really difficult questions and engage thoughts and examples in culture that are not tied into how we might actually believe. So I think my question is just like, how do we find... I don't think it's a middle ground, but how do we find a model that attends to the world of trauma, but then also attends to resiliency? So oh, yeah. something along those lines is what I was grappling with this morning. Just on an average day running through New York City. That's what's yeah, going Central through Park Jay Stringer's is, mind. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, awesome. Jay, where, where can people find you, your book, your work? Um, what's the best way? And I'll put all this in the show notes. 
Sure. Uh, so my website is jay-stringer.com. Uh, and there's a lot of resources there. The online course, I have a sexual behavior self-assessment that is about 140 questions based in the research that I did. So if you're curious about what's actually driving your behaviors, that's going to give you compass headings, essentially, of here's your story with your mom, your dad, here's your core fantasies. Uh, and so I would say that's, you know, that's my desire uh, is to really provide churches, small groups, individuals with the resources that they need uh, to change the conversation around sexual brokenness and find healing. So my website has most of those resources Great. listed there. So great. great. Well, I will put all of those things in the show notes. And yeah, I definitely encourage people to check out your book as well, Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals uh, our way to healing. Uh, Jay, lead thank them you. to the website. Lead I'm them to the kidding. website. There we go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Jay, thank you so much for, for giving of your time to have a conversation with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends, I hope that this conversation uh, resonated with you, maybe on very deep levels or maybe just starting a conversation or starting some thoughts for you. And I would love for you to share this episode in particular with a friend. 100% if you're accountability, if you're an accountability partner to somebody, uh, send this to your somebody. And uh, and I hope that it continues to offer healing um, or at least starts the conversation on, on a path forward. So thanks so much for listening, friends, and we'll see you next time.